We're going to read again from Luke chapter 2. We've been diving in for the past several weeks on this series on the gifts of Christmas. Even though it's a passage we've read a couple of times already, I'm zeroing in on verse 10 today. And we're going to look at another of these gifts of Christmas, the gift of joy. But let me ask you to read Luke 2, verses 8 through 12 with me. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Let's pray for a moment. Father God, as we enter into these days that are close to our celebrations of Christmas, that which we do here together and in our homes as we break up all over the South Shore, and as some travel this week, we ask that you will give us a greater and greater sense of wonder about what you have done, about how great your love is, and about the unfolding of your plan in sending Jesus. It is still an amazing and a humbling thing when we slow down long enough to think about how you, the creator of all the earth and all that is, and all that is beyond, we care about people like us so much to send your very own son into this world to identify with us, to become one of us, to show us the way, to rescue us and redeem us. You are an amazing God. And we know that you are powerful. You can do all things. And you enter into the midst of this world which is wonderful and spectacular and beautiful and at the same time broken and hard and at times full of pain. And we call on you to act in our lives that you would bring the kind of shalom, that, that greatest, deepest kind of peace that we talked about last week, Bring it into our lives, bring it into our homes, bring it into our neighborhoods, bring it into our workplaces. We pray that you would cause that peace to rest in us with such power and such force and such transforming ability that it would radiate, radiate out through us and that others would recognize what you are doing inside of us as you are changing us little by little as you are making us slowly, painfully, a little more like Jesus. Thank you for the promise that comes that when we see you face to face, we will be like him. We will no longer be in process. We will no longer be in these earthly bodies that get older and die. But we will have those new bodies designed for eternity that are like Jesus' body, no longer subject to decay. Thank you for the fact that we will live in a world one day that is dominated by your peace and by your grace, and where there is no more suffering and no more sickness and no more pain and no more death. We long for that time. It's hard for us to conceive of it sometimes. 
because we're used to this world and we gear ourselves up for the sadness of this world. But thank you that in the midst of this world we can have the experience of joy which brings us into the eternal celebration of who you are and when we are caught up in it, it reminds us that we are part of something different, we are part of your family and that we belong to you and that we matter to you and that your spirit rests in those who trust in Jesus. Today we pray for those families that are walking through challenging times. We pray for the, the Craven family and the Hull family and the Frazier family as they have all lost loved ones, parents who have passed over the last week or so. We ask that you will console them. We ask that you will walk through the tender moments of these days with them and that you will grant them strength and peace of heart. We pray for Barb Candlish as she's back in the hospital. And we pray again that you will give Barb strength and that you will allow her body to, to fight back and that you will restore her to full health. Pray for my father-in-law in the same way with the struggles he's been going through for the last few months. And Lord, for those that I'm not aware of, that Christmas can be a, a really hard time because of all of our expectations and yet life goes on and sometimes we're dealing with the the painful side. Walk with us every day. Show us your light. In Jesus' name, amen. So Christy mentioned it in her announcements, but who's the one you've been praying for? We're going to do that just for a moment. Who's the one person that God's put on your mind, on your heart? Maybe it's somebody that you're just thinking of for the first time this moment, but let's stop right here. Let's pray for those folks. God, we pray. For those who are closest to us, who need to find you, who need to know you, use our example, use our words, use our kindness and love, and put other people in their pathways too, so that you'll lead each one to grace. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. One of the greatest Christmas songs ever written came as the result of a complaint about worship music from a young man in his late teens. He noted the, what he called the dull indifference that songs in church produced in the church attendees where he happened to attend on a regular basis. And after listening to him, the young man's father challenged him to do better. So that young man's name was Isaac Watts, and he presented the first hymn he had written the very next Sunday. And since his dad was the pastor of the church, he said, okay, we'll let you try it out in the evening service. And so it was that uh, Isaac Watts started to become the father of the great hymn movement. It was called, Behold the Glories of the Lamb. His father was the pastor of a, uh, a non-denominational church in the 1600s in England, which was a rather dangerous thing to do. He was actually put in prison for leading a church that was a non-conformist church, uh, and it wasn't a part of the state church. And his son actually admired his father's courage for all of that. A few years later, Isaac Watts, that former teenage worship music critic, wrote the lyrics to a song that you and I all love called Joy to the World, the Lord has Come. And a revolution in Christian worship music had begun. So, since I can't get enough of Christmas carols, we're going to stand and we're going to sing Joy to the World, a cappella. That's a fancy way, again, of saying without accompaniment, just our voices. Joy to the world, the Lord.
Lord is come, let earth receive her King. Let every heart prepare Him room, and heaven and nature sing, and heaven and nature sing, and heaven and heaven and nature sing. Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. Let man's their songs employ. While fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy, repeat the sounding joy, repeat, repeat the sounding joy. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found, far as, far as the curse is found. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of His righteousness and wonders of His love, and wonders of His love, and wonders, wonders of His love. Wonderful. Thank you. Now, what was revolutionary about that song was that prior to the hymns that Isaac Watts wrote, in the churches in England, people did what they called line singing. There would be a worship leader standing in front of the, car, in front of the congregation, and they would sing out a line, and then the congregation would sing the exact same line, and they would go through every single hymn with that kind of very metered, slow response. And when Watts began to write these hymns and these Christmas carols, it was a literal revolution in the experience of people, not just in the way that the songs appeared in the hymn book. And it, it, it caused people in the churches England, in England to begin to sing from the heart and to sing with, with a passion and a gusto, much like we sing Christmas carols. This morning we're looking at another of the gifts of Christmas, and I have a simple question. What is joy? We talk about it, we sing about it, this carol comes back year after year. What is joy? When the Bible talks about joy, it has a lot of choices. There are actually 29 words that are used between the Old Testament and the, and the New Testament that express some kind of form of joy. Theopedia.com describes joy this way. It is a state of mind and an orientation of the heart it is a settled state of contentment, confidence, and hope. Most people who talk about joy know that it's very different from happiness. Happiness is something that's based on conditions that are present, and it can be a very fleeting thing. You can experience happiness and then lose it and be very sad or very angry in the same day. Joy is something that is more of a state of orientation that says there is something that is so wonderful about my life or about the world or more importantly about who I am experiencing God to be that it transforms even the way that we go through periods of sadness or periods of loss or periods of suffering. 
Another dictionary definition in the Holman Bible Dictionary puts it this way, joy is the fruit of a right relation with God. Joy is the fruit of a right relation with God. In other words, when you are right with God, when you really understand God for who He is, what He's doing, and what He wants, there is a joy that should be produced in our lives in some measure. That joy can be greater at times, it can be lesser at times, but it never completely leaves the life of a Christian who fully understands that relationship with God. Theologian Stanley Howarus describes joy this way. He says, we are living in such a way that we are going with the grain of the universe when we experience joy. And then he explains what's behind that. He tells us that the universe was designed in a certain way by its creator. That means that we should aim to live so that we are going with the grain of the universe rather than against the grain. Do you understand that image of with the grain and against the grain? It's, a, it's an old woodworker's note that uh, sometimes when you're, you're um, sawing or you're sanding a piece of wood, you always want to go with the grain so that you get a nice smooth finish. If you go against the grain, you ruin that piece of wood. But when you're going with the grain, it's a whole lot easier. It's a whole lot smoother. He goes on to say that life becomes very difficult when we are going against the grain of what God has designed for us. But joy is found when we live in simple ways that reflect Jesus' witness to God the Father. A huge amount of what we celebrate during the season of Advent and Christmas is about the witness of Jesus to the world and the witness of Jesus' life about the intentions and the love of the Father. So for the next few minutes, we're going to explore this concept of Christmas joy. And what I was, was caught up in this week was diving very deeply into one verse, verse 10, that we read a moment ago. And so that will keep coming back. But I'm looking not at the stuff we looked at the previous weeks, but at this concept of joy. So here, here's the first discovery about joy. It is the joy of the Father. Christmas joy is the joy of the Father. Again, we read in verse 10, but the angel said to them, do not be afraid, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, or the Christ, the Lord. Believe it or not, we have been hearing about the joy of God from the beginning of God's communication with people. In the midst of the creative process, Genesis tells us that God said, it is good, this is good. In fact, he does this seven times in Genesis chapter 1, verse 4, verse 10, verse 12, verse 18, verse 21, verse 25, and again in verse 31. He keeps saying, this is good. The final time that God surveys all that he's made, he stops and he says, this is very good. These are words of rejoicing from God. And so we start in the very first chapter of the Bible reflecting on the fact that we have a God who rejoices over all creation. You have a God who rejoices over you as a part of that creation. This is the beginning of what we discover as the joy of the Father. Psalm 98 is one of those great psalms that reflects the joy of the Lord. Many of you may know that the psalms for many, many years and centuries were sung in churches by Christian people and even before that by the Jewish people. And most of them were written as songs to be sung. Psalm 98 is kind of interesting. Verses 1 through 3 read this way. Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. 
The Lord has made his salvation known and revealed his righteousness to the nations. He has remembered his love and faithfulness to Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of God. Pick it up a few verses later in verse 7 it says, Let the sea resound in everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands, let the mountains sing together for joy. Now sometimes when you're reading that poetic language about mountain singing and, and the clapping of the hands and nature and so forth, you think, oh boy, we're locked in this poetic language of the Old Testament that we can't, re can't really understand. But you know what? We can. Psalm 98, it turns out, was the psalm that Isaac Watts was thinking about and rehearsing over and over when he wrote Joy to the World. Sometime pull out your Bible and read Psalm 98 and look at it side by side with the words of Joy to the World and you discover that Joy to the World is a paraphrase of Psalm 98 where what he did was rather than take it literally word for word he took the concepts and he built into each stanza of the song the concepts. So the resounding joy that we've been singing about all these years, what that is is all the ways in nature that nature itself praises God. That's the resounding joy, the resounding of, of the rivers and the trees and, and all this noise that happens when you climb a mountain and you experience all the wonders of nature. Joy to the world is simply a rewrite of an Old Testament psalm, Psalm 98. And the amazing thing is that he was criticized for this song back in the late 1600s and the early 1700s because the song didn't follow the psalm word by word. Instead, it kind of rearranged it in order to fit the meter of, of the uh, phrasing that Watts was aiming for. But what he was doing was capturing the joy of the Father who has communicated salvation through all the ages and of all creation as a witness to his love, his salvation, and his justice. Here's what we discover through that exercise. God himself is the primary source of our Christmas joy. He is the one who sent the angel with the message of joy that the Savior has come into the world, and he has been proclaiming his joy over his creation and over his people since the beginning of time as we know it. This is not just joy. This is great joy, Luke tells us. And this great joy we're going to see is for all the people. So the first exploration of Christmas joy tells us that it's the joy of the Father that we are given. Here is the second discovery we make about Christmas joy. It is also the joy of the angels. We have to skip to one of the New Testament letters later in the New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 1. We read this a few weeks ago. But in verses 10 through 12, Peter writes, Concerning this salvation, the prophets, who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing, when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. And then a little bit later in verse 12 he adds, even angels long to look into these things. So imagine, if you will, the joy of the angels. Angels are presented in the Bible from time to time as messengers from the Lord. In other words, they are given assignments. They don't create uh, history, they don't make things happen, but they tell other people messages from the Lord, sometimes about things that are coming, sometimes interpreting things that have already happened. 
Some angels serve in the presence of the Lord, but we're told that some have very specific roles as messengers. Well, that means that the angels are not primary actors in the work of God, but they are servants who from time to time are given the great privilege of announcing what God is about to do. Peter adds in his letter that they long to look into how God unveils his plan of salvation. And so he says these words, even angels long to look into these things. Well, what things? The way that God acts in history, the way that God has acted in sending Jesus in the world, the way that God cares for you and me even today. So imagine the thrill enjoyed by this one specific angel of the Lord who has the sheer privilege of announcing to the shepherds of Bethlehem that the Christ child, the Messiah, has been born that very night, and despite the fact the world doesn't realize what has happened, all of this is in fulfillment of hundreds of years of prophecy, which they, along with the prophets, have been searching and wondering, how would this all come to fulfillment? Perhaps this explains why that one angel is then joined by the heavenly host of angels, They can't hold it back. Though the one angel has the privilege of announcing it first, but no sooner does he get the words out, and all of a sudden Luke tells us that the shepherds saw this great company of angels or a host of angels in the sky. And so the Bible uses military terms describing angels as as hosts, meaning like, like an army of angels that have gathered. And one of the things you start to realize when you look at this concept of what's being told to us here is that it's not the first time that we hear about the heavenly hosts. All the way back in Genesis 32, Jacob encounters the angels of God, and he says, this is the camp of God. And he has this vision of so many of the angels who are moving backward and forward in the presence of the Lord. In Joshua chapter 5, Joshua encounters the captain of the armies of the Lord, or the Lord's host. And Joshua goes forward and he has the audacity to confront this this intimidating person. And he says, are you for us or are you for them? And he says, neither. I come to you as the captain of the the host of the Lord, of the Lord's army. Now, this is probably a pre-incarnate visit of Jesus Christ himself. And Joshua falls down on the ground and starts worshiping. And so we have these pictures, glimpses every once in a while that that God has at his command untold many angels, and they are powerful, and they are intimidating. Putting all this together, since the angels long to look into the ways in which the Lord works, his plan for saving people, in other words, it's no wonder that the entire heavenly host wants to join in the great announcement and celebration of that first Christmas. That's why we have songs like Hark the Herald Angels Sing. The the, the songwriters are just trying to capture a little bit of the power of that moment, of the excitement and the, the jubilation of that moment. And when we stand and we sing songs like that, we are trying to get caught up in the memory of something very, very powerful that has already happened. So here's the big idea for this morning. Joy is living in such a way that we join in the eternal celebration of how God loves and saves his people while revealing his glory. We join in this eternal celebration that continues on in the presence of God. So we're looking at this idea of Christmas joy. It's the joy of the Father. It's the joy of the angels. Here's the third discovery. 
It's the joy of Jesus' birth. That's the part we're most familiar with. So we go back to these verses. Verse 10, the angel says to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And then we jump forward a couple of verses to verse 13. Suddenly a great company of a heavenly host appeared with the angel. Have you ever wondered why Christians sing so much? I get asked that question every once in a while when somebody is brand new to all of this and they, and they walk in and they say, you know, that was really weird. I mean, these people in your church, they stand and they, and they sing and there's like passion coming out of them and where does that come from? It's weird for some people because they're not in the presence of people who openly sing. And even when they may walk into a church, they, they kind of mouth the words of the Christmas carols and so forth. Why does it happen? Why, why do you sing? Do you know? Do you know why we have you do that? It's not just to kill time. It's not just to fill until something else happens in the service. Singing is an expression of joy. We sing about things that we love, about things that we want to celebrate. Sometimes, we sing about things that make us sad and we, we lament, but most of the time, singing is a celebration of joy. So every Sunday around here, we, we are singing about the changes that God brings into our lives. We are singing about the, the wonder of His grace. We, we are singing about the goodness of our God. And the angels sang. They sang out of their joy over the announcement of the most wonderful thing they ever could have imagined, that God has sent His very own Son into the world. This was the one thing that they longed to look into most. Hints had been dropped through the ages that caused people to hope and to wait and to, to think that maybe God might do something like this, but they weren't sure how it would all play out. The clue given to Adam and Eve was that a child born from Eve's descendants would crush the head of the evil one and yet would also be struck in the process. Genesis 3.15. There was another clue given to Abraham when the Lord passed through the carcasses that we read about in Genesis 15 as the Lord made a, a contract, a covenant with Abraham. And the Lord himself is the one who passes through as if to say, if either party fails to keep the covenant, I will take the penalty. I will walk through the dead animals. This is what should happen to me. It's a foreshadowing of what God was promising to do in veiled form in sending Jesus. There was another clue given to Micah. And Micah wrote in, in chapter 5 of his small book at the end of the Old Testament that a ruler would come from Bethlehem. And it was known well enough that when the Magi came to King Herod, this is the passage that they took the Magi to. And they said, the child is going to be born in Bethlehem. If you're searching for this, this king who's already been born, you've got to go to Bethlehem. And they do. And there were clues that were given to Isaiah. One of them was in Isaiah 7.14, verse we looked at a couple of weeks ago, that a virgin would give birth to a son, and they would give him this title, Emmanuel, that his presence would mean that God is with us forevermore. And there are many others. My great hope is that as we celebrate Advent, moving toward Christmas, that nobody here thinks that we are just honoring traditions. 
When we sing Christmas carols and dive into these birth narratives in the, in the Gospels, we are sharing in the joy of God the Father himself. We are sharing in the joy of the angels. We are sharing in the joy of Jesus. And so Luke 2 leads us, teaches us, guides us in how different life is because of Jesus. Here's a fourth discovery about joy. We're looking at the source of it. We're looking at, at uh, the expressions of it. It's the joy of the Father. It's the joy of the angels. It's the joy of Jesus' birth. And it's the joy of the shepherds as well. If we jump forward into the next paragraph of Luke 2, verse 20 is instructive. It says, the shepherds returned after uh, going down to Bethlehem after seeing Jesus. They returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen which were just as they had been told. So many angles to look at joy from. How God the Father is the author of the plan and the source of Christmas joy, how the angels are heralds of Christmas joy and they want us to get in on this, how Jesus' arrival is the subject of Christmas joy. And now we find the angels who were the first witnesses of that Christmas joy. Have you ever wondered why God chose to announce the birth of Jesus to shepherds? One reason is that God often describes himself as a shepherd in the Bible. In Isaiah chapter 40, it says, He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. Think about that one for a minute. That's the way God cares about you if you are one of his, his children. That he carries you in his arms and he carries you close to his heart. That is a tender pastoral image, not pastoral in the profession. Pastoral means going back out to the pastures where the shepherds are. Psalm 78, verse 52. But he brought his people out like a flock. He led them like sheep through the wilderness. He guided them safely, so they were unafraid. But the sea engulfed their enemies. That's describing the way that God led his people through the days of Moses, even in the days of their wandering through the wilderness and through the, the exodus. He led them out. He rescued them. And in rescuing them, those who came to attack them, they were swallowed up by the Red Sea. Psalm 23 has this brilliant, wonderful, memorable imagery. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And the rest of the psalm goes on to talk about the way that he leads us, that he guides us, how he takes us even through the difficult passages of life, that, that he's our shepherd and he's faithful with us. In the New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 2 includes these thoughts from, from Peter, the leader of the disciples. He's, he writes, For you are like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Wow. That's the role that God plays. He's the shepherd and the overseer of my soul. He's the shepherd and the overseer of your soul. He is watching about the spiritual, watching over the spiritual condition of your life. And even though you go through all these difficult passages, he cares about how you come through. He cares about how you come out of them. He cares about how each and every day and aspect and, and challenge of life impacts you. At the time that Luke wrote his gospel, shepherds were marginalized people in the first century. Shepherding was considered, considered to be a menial task, uh, 
with very low income potential. It was not a great career. It wasn't the kind of thing that Jewish mothers said, I'm so excited, my son's becoming a shepherd. Jesus told stories about shepherds and they weren't all good. Sometimes he talked about the hirelings, shepherds for hire who would run in those times of trouble, whereas the shepherd who truly owned the sheep would stay with them and who would face the wolf or whatever else would come their way. And yet we have this history of God referring to himself as the true shepherd of his flock in contrast with the hired hands who run in times of trouble. Then at Christmas, God chose to reveal his plan and his Messiah to this group of shepherds first. Those who had been marginalized and written off were suddenly part of the story, center stage. That is what God does with us. Christmas after Christmas after Christmas. People who beforehand had felt left out and marginalized and seeing all this from a distance come to understand Jesus as the Savior, Jesus as the Messiah, put their faith in him and all of a sudden Christmas is transformed into an event that's not just about history but it's about us. And songs that we tolerated all of a sudden become songs of joy. People who had been left out of or marginalized are brought into the story of grace and put right in the center scene. Perhaps this is where some of you are finding yourselves today. You realize that you were once standing outside of all of the wonder about God's grace. Maybe even walking in today prior to this you've never really thought that this is all for me and, and maybe these songs actually contain a, a wonder and a joy that can change how I think about Christmas and how I think about life. And here you are, brought nearer and nearer to him by the songs and stories of Christmas. That is exactly God's intent. See, joy is living in such a way that we join in the eternal celebration of how God loves and saves his people while revealing his glory. And then there's one more thought, one more angle to come at this with. It's joy for the rest of us. Notice again, if we go back to verse 10, but the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. It wasn't just for the shepherds. It wasn't just for the angels. It wasn't just for Mary and Joseph. Joy is for the rest of us. Do you know why we encourage people to invite others at Christmas time? One reason is cultural, I'll be honest about that. This is a time when more people are open to hearing about Jesus at Christmas because there are many people who celebrate Christmas even if they barely tolerate Christian faith. You know that, you have friends like that, you have family members like that, as do I. But the second reason is eternal. The birth and arrival of Jesus the Messiah was the great hidden mystery that God was planning and waiting to reveal all through the ages. It's why the Old Testament has these sprinkled clues throughout it that were giving little glimpses of what he was about to do. And you and I have the privilege of living on the other side of the life of Jesus where all these things have happened. The life of Jesus is like a centrical force that draws us all toward him, but it's been happening all throughout time. 
as God has wired creation to praise Him and wired people to honor Him and to love Him. Perhaps today you needed to hear about joy because you're going through a, a time of sadness. We've had a handful of North River families that have been dealing with great loss in, in their lives this week. And that sometimes makes Christmas a really tough time. I get it. My family's been going through this uh, as well, watching my father-in-law slowly decline. And yesterday, something very awful happened and something wonderful. The doctors met with my mother-in-law and said, uh, your husband's going to die in the next few days. No reversing that. So last night, I brought my kids, my two daughters and my son-in-law, in to see Papa, maybe for the last time. And we had to wake him up. He wasn't all that with it. And I warned the girls and I told them. I'd spent most of the day there. And I watched as my daughters leaned over him and with tears blowing down their face, they, they hugged him and they kissed him. And he spoke up and he said, oh, you have no idea what you guys mean to me. And then he reached out and he said, do you mind if I pray for you? It's very broken, got congestive heart failure, can't talk very well. But here's my father-in-law, who's a very godly man and my very dear friend, praying over my daughters and my son-in-law. He got some of the words wrong, we were laughing through it. I had to say amen for it and end this thing at some point. But it was one of the most wonderful things I've ever seen in my life. Well, my father-in-law, who knows where he's going, is not afraid of what comes next. In fact, he can't wait. And, but he's praying over those that he's leaving behind. That's the joy of Christmas. It's the joy of understanding who Jesus is and what Jesus means in the midst of this broken life. It's the joy that transforms hearts of people. And every once in a while, we get a glimpse of what God is doing, even through the broken parts of life. I know it doesn't always end that way, but I had to share that with you because I witnessed something last night that was absolutely heartbreaking and wonderful at the same time. The Bible speaks to the amazing ability of God to, walk, uh, to work through our sorrows and to produce joy through them. Psalm 30 says, weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. Psalm 126 says, those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. In John 16, Jesus says, you will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. He has this way of doing that when we give him those moments. A major feature of the ministry of Jesus was this infusion of joy. Dr. Michael McIntosh in his book, The Tender Touch of God, writes this. The joy of the Lord was at the tomb of the resurrected Lazarus, overshadowing the sadness and disapp disappointment of the dead man's sisters. Can you imagine the joy of Jesus when he sees Lazarus come out of the tomb? Tears all around until that moment. He goes on to say, joy was there when the lepers came back to thank Jesus. Joy was there when the deaf heard the blind saw, the lame walked. Joy was there when a woman was caught in the act of adultery and was forgiven and set free by Jesus. Joy was there when the little children flocked to Jesus. Joy was there when that boy gave his lunch 
so that he could work a miracle that would feed thousands. Can you imagine the joy of Jesus taking that little lunch and saying, watch this kid. Watch, gonna ha- watch, watch what's going to happen here. This is going to be amazing. As he, you know, the crowds are blown away by all the food, but the little boy is watching this whole thing and realizing what his gift means in the hands of the Lord. Joy was there when the dawn broke, and the women who had gone to the tomb knew that Jesus was no longer dead. Can you imagine their walk or run or pattern of skipping all the way back to that upper room where the disciples were quaking in fear, not yet knowing what God had done? Bible is a book of joy. Christian faith is a call to joy more than anything else. It's not just about Christmas carols and joy that we sing now. The whole thing is about joy in the midst of a broken and difficult world. We go with the grain of God's central message when we put Jesus at the center of our lives. And so my my question is, the last question I have for you before we get to Christmas Eve, are you ready to respond to him and go with the grain of what God has done? Close your eyes for a minute. Just be quiet for a minute, please. Maybe there's some part of this that you need to whisper to the Lord. Jesus, I know that I cannot save myself from my sins or from my addictions. Jesus, I need your strength. I need your help for what I'm going through. I need your power to live with the grain of life as you created it, rather than living the hard life of going against the grain. Jesus, I confess that I've gone my own way and I've strayed from your path. Jesus, I am giving up on doing things in my selfish way. Help me to follow your way. Jesus, grant me grace and forgiveness and make me new on the inside. Jesus, I'm putting my trust in you as the Savior, show me the way. Jesus, I'm putting my trust in you, the one who was sent to pay for my sins. Take them away. Help me to follow and grow in faith. I trust you, and I will serve you out of gratefulness. Father, I pray that you would hear our prayers all week long. Thank you for this wonderful time, and thank you for walking through this amazing life with us. And thank you most of all for allowing us to have seasons of great joy in the midst of lives that have difficult chapters. Thank you for the joy of the Father that you have reflected so well. It's in his name, Jesus' name, that we come to you, Father and that we celebrate all this week and all that you have done. Amen.